human resources. A department lauded in most organizations as the cops on the block. What's it like to work in the field? On today's show, the delightful Linda Croner joins us to talk about it, the sometimes fine line between employee and employer balance, and what does it take to succeed in the field of human resources after all. All that and more on Tuesday noon for October 17, 2006. Welcome to Tuesday Noon, another Tuesday, another noon, another sunny Seattle. It's still sunny in Seattle. Every time we come up here, it's sunny and beautiful. They should rename that movie. Shh, that's the, it's not. It's a secret. It's not. <laughs> it's, you're going to go with the Sleepless in Seattle? Sleepless in Seattle, yeah. Sunny, sunny in Seattle. Seattle. That dates you, and it shows yeah. you're kind of a geek for <laughs> watching. But all the, all the women out there Did you cry when Old be... Yeller was shot? Oh. Did you? All the women out there are, are looking at Jamie Diffie yeah, now to know like, that he oh, watched Sleepless in Seattle. He's soft. He's Believe tender. Me, they're looking at oh, Jamie Diffie for we didn't all know. sorts mm-hmm. of And he's handsome exactly. and intellectual. <laughs> I, the marriage proposals are going to start pouring in now, aren't they? <laughs> Well, I just am, if right, you do that, uh, send pictures. Look, I gotta have pictures. Just don't send me. You know, marry me. No, no that was pictures. a real mistake to ask for pictures. <laughs> Always a real mistake. Yeah. Do you so, think uh, I didn't know? I, that? Uh, this is Pete Wright. I'm sitting here around the table with Mary Bradbury Jones. And unfortunately, send your pictures too. Jay- <laughs> Jamie at Tuesday12.com. Tuesday12.com. You don't even check that email, do you? I do <laughs> not. <laughs> We've got a uh, we've got a, a interesting I you were show today. This to me. I'm not. I, I need to I get on there. All I don't right. touch your stuff. <laughs> I uh, uh, we've got an interesting show today, and I think we're kicking it off well. Uh, and uh, who's in charge of introducing? I'm in charge today. today. Uh, well, we're fortunate to be back in Seattle and have another one of their esteemed faculty members here with us. Um, her name is uh, Linda Croner. Did I? Yes. Excellent. Okay. And uh, Linda's primary uh, area of expertise is human resources. She's got a consulting company. Boo-ish. So, um, why? <laughs> oh no, we will disabuse you of those notions. I was just adding a little, you know, sound to this track. A little, drama, a little drama. Little yeah. drama. All right. So, uh, Linda, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, maybe how long you've been teaching with the University of Phoenix? Sure. Well, in uh, my other job, as you mentioned, my background is human resources. I was somebody's HR director for about 200 years, or give or take. Oh, wow. You look great. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, At least it seemed that way. Anyway, for the last nine years, I've been doing human resources and management consulting here in the Seattle area. And in terms of teaching, I've been teaching for the university since 1993. I started, wow. I started teaching in this, at the Southern California campus. And I like to tell my students that I moved to Seattle so they opened a campus here. <laughs> Although I suspect that's not exactly the way oh, it sure went. It's true. But I've been teaching at this campus since it opened. Well, what another one. This is our third one that's been a, uh, a pioneer of the, of the Seattle campus. They pioneers, can't get us out of here. Pioneers take the most arrows. That is so cool. Uh, something, <laughs> yes. Yes, you're at the front, I think. They're doing something right. That's and they have right. some great longevity with their that's faculty wonderful. members. So great. What does an HR consultant do? Well, I'll, I'll give you my kind of my stock answer, whatever they pay you to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> although that's sort of the nature of consultants. But... Uh, firms do specialize, and there are things that we don't do. Uh, we don't design compensation and benefit systems. We don't do some of the technical work. But we are the outsourced HR for uh, some clients. We do investigations of employee complaints. 
We will, I do some work for attorney firms when they say, find out if we're going to get sued. Um, we do uh, some compensation market studies. Mm-hmm. And I've done organizational studies. Uh, my business partner does assessment centers. I do not. Interesting. Uh, employment law, I mean, evaluating in terms of hiring practices or firing practices and the law and lawsuits and all that as well? Uh, yes, we will be um, evaluating their policies, making sure they're compliant. And we will, uh, for the attorneys, I'm going in and evaluating a situation and determining their legal risk from an HR standpoint. It's usually EEO related, sometimes whistleblower related. And do you have an issue or is the employee just talking through their hat or does it not rise to that level? Or um, I have on occasion called the lawyer and say, settle this one before they sue you because it's ugly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's the nature of the complaint investigation. And how, how are you, sorry, when, you're, when you're investigating those things for those lawyers, how is the company... How are you treated or how's the company treating you when you come in? I mean, I assume you're coming in to do that evaluation. They know that. Are they, co-op- are they normally cooperative? Are they normally evasive? Or? Well, the, the, it's the company's counsel that has invited me in. Oh, okay. Sorry. So they're that. fine. Okay. okay. The employee is usually pretty forthcoming because they try to convince me of their point of view. Okay. okay. So uh, whether they're telling the truth or not is a totally separate issue, but they they want to be helpful and they want to be forthcoming because they want me to provide a good report. I'm seen as somebody from out there. Jamie, taking, <laughs> taking photographs. Pictures. I, I got out my phone and I saw you with your camera. I'm like, oh, I could take pictures. And so there's Pete and there's the famous $4.50 shirt. <laughs> So, yeah. Memorialized on your phone. You can make it the wallpaper for your phone. So, well, I don't want Pete as my wallpaper. (laughs) It sort of begs the question. Yeah, there are a lot of things. What is hostile work environment, and why is Jamie afraid of every room he walks into? Okay, I got got a couple. I feel good now. Woohoo! All right, sorry. Well, see, part of HR's job is to make employees want to feel good and want to be here. That's right. I've already, look at what I've accomplished here. Why? Why am I the one that always gets picked on? We highly recommend that you open. hire Linda. <laughs> She's you asked, you asked about hostile work environment. I did. What is a hostile work environment? Uh, it's greatly misunderstood. There's really two things. Um, there's an illegal hostile work environment when it relates to sexual harassment. I put up dirty pictures. I tell dirty jokes. I might put my arm around you. I mean, do things that you're uncomfortable, and that's hostile work environment. That's illegal. Lots of times, uh, clients will get very excited, saying, "They've said hostile work environment. We're going to get sued." But what they're really talking about is hostile, as in crummy. Uh, the supervisor <laughs> nags me. My employees are making, uh, as coworkers are making fun of me, and it's hostile and it's not illegal. It's merely crummy. That doesn't make it good, and it does. It's a problem to fix, but um, the problem you run into in defining the crummy type of hostile work environment is: Do you have a supervisor who's simply demanding, or are they overbearing? And man, that can be real shades of difference. 
and people do have their personalities. And to some degree, you deal with the supervisor you get. And when do they cross the line into being hostile and not treating people well? That's a real tough judgment call that differs depending on the employment uh, situation, depending on the kinds of employees, depends on the personalities involved. You know, we talk about organizational behavior, but organizations don't have behavior. People have behavior. And that mix is what makes the world interesting. You know what, Linda, that gets to a question that, that <clears throat> nags me every time HR comes up in conversation. Is, where did HR come from? Is it a birth of the American workplace becoming more sort of constrained and puritanical and PC? Or is it more of a, 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 a protectionist stance for organizations? Well, the answer to your question is yes. I'll give you the, sh- the short version of HR history. We started out as record keepers because somebody had to keep track of, you know, who was here and what were they paid and uh, when's the last time they got promoted and whatever. And then technology gave us a new lease on life so that we turned into part of the strategy team and part of the strategy planning. What so many organizations still don't get is that they keep very good track of all their hard assets. They know where every table is or they know where every piece of equipment is. But you have to have pretty high inventory or raw material or capital costs to get the cost of your people and all of their associated costs less than 50%. So all of a sudden they realize there's this person who's in charge of keeping track of 50, 60, 70, 80% of their assets. Exactly so that we are managing an asset, which means protection. And yes, we're very constrained by all kinds of laws. And, but that doesn't, the laws really shouldn't keep you from getting where you need to go. It may speak to how you get there. Mm-hmm. But you don't, you don't want to get sued and you don't want to spend money on lawyers. There's better things to spend money on. So that, yeah, that's part of what you do. But you're really also saying, okay, here's the vision and the goal for this organization, and how do I manage the people, or how do I help others manage the people to get from here to where you're going in five to ten years? Uh, To give you kind of a simplistic example, I've had the situation of sitting around and they're talking about some new uh, emphasis or new direction for the organization, and in my head I'm going, and where am I finding these people? Do I have them on staff? Mm-hmm. Uh, if not, what kind of sourcing? I've got to go develop those sources. What kind of lead time do I need? When, when are you thinking of starting this? Don't come. Don't call me up and say, I need these people, none of whom we have on board, and I don't know where they are, but could you have them on board in two weeks? So now you're getting to these product development issues that right. leadership doesn't think of. Uh, the kind of HR side of it. Because yeah. uh, you have to have people to do the things. Mm-hmm. And where are you going to find those folk? Particularly, uh, one of the things we keep an eye on is demographics. And, you know, you, you had a prior show on Gen Y, but between the baby boomers and the Gen Y is a dip. And so we've been following those demographics, and during that dip, where am I finding these people? Not to mention the fact that the skill sets are changing so quickly. Mm-hmm. So I've got to find some, may, I may have very skilled employees but the new direction, the new product, the new process is a different skill set. So I have to train them or find new folk or do something. Right. 
And it's, I don't have to tell you, it's changing at an incredible, incredible rate. So, so what do you do? I mean, what's the strategy? I'm sort of derailing us, but I'm really interested in this concept because we have this idea of uh, should, should an aging workforce scare us? Uh, because is that where we're going to find the, the sort of maintenance of skills as you know, we start having trouble finding people from the dip? Um, or what? I mean, what's the next step from a staffing perspective for major organizations? Well, it really should be a combination. It should be a combination of upgrading the talent you got because in addition to skills, they have what I call institutional memory. Just throwing out the folks you got, you might throw out someone who has a history with a customer, who knows why the particular deal with the customer was made, and that has nothing to do with skill level, nothing to do with new product, has to do with relationship, and they got it. You don't want to get rid of it. So you have to strike a balance between developing the talent you have but making sure that you've got in the pipeline something coming up, which means you're sourcing or you're training other uh, lower-level staff. Succession planning is a huge issue, uh, and, and that kind of skill development is part of it. I have a client right now that I am trying to get through to them on this issue. I took a look at their company di- uh, demographics, and they have a huge bulge right in the 50s in terms of age group. And I said, have you thought about the fact that in 10 years you have some sort of die-off coming? It's going to be a red-letter day <laughs> when <it's> retirement <laughs> season, and, huh? And, and we're talking about a kind of organization where there's a great deal of information in their heads. Yeah. Exactly. They have nothing written down. They have, And all that's walking out the door. So at the same time they're taking these folks and trying to modernize their skill set, we need at the same time to be looking at uh, having them mentor people or bringing in people with new skill sets or depending on the the position. There's different kinds of positions in the company. So there's not a a simple answer to that question. It's going to be a mix. There's not a simple answer to anything in HR, actually. It's always, well... it's, it depends. That's my usual answer is it depends. <laughs> and given the opportunity, I'll say it at least 10 times in this particular uh, go-round. Well, I'm thinking along that same line with kind of managing the resources, another big, at least, emphasis in HR should be in the area of leadership development so that you have people prepared to step into those positions and also be in place to take the organization where it needs to go and who will take the high performers with them. Because if you don't have good leadership and management in place, you're high performers. Those are the folks that are passionate, innovative, intelligent, creative, um, proactive, those kinds of things. They eventually get so fed up that they take all that intellectual capital, thus the the drive and the passion and all of that, and they go to the competitor. That's where they take it. Or they start their own company. Knock your socks off. I have this theory that in, in... Unfortunately, in, in companies, and this isn't true for all of them because there are a lot of well-run companies, but sure. in too many companies, what happens is is the, the really bad ones just they get fired because they need to move on or do something else that fits them better. The really passionate, good, high-quality, intelligent ones, they just, at, at a certain point, they're like, I can't do this anymore because we're not nurturing them, we're not growing them, we're not giving them opportunities, and then the mediocre ones stay. 
Yes. And mm -hmm. they hang out, and then over a period of time, the mediocre ones come to run some of those things, and it just it kind of breeds this mediocrity, and it spirals, and it's just not good. Wow. So then what's your concern, that you have a bulge in the middle of folks in their 50s, or that you have a bulge in the middle of absolute <laughs> mediocrity? Unfortunately, and, and certainly you can talk to it better than I can, I think in my experience as a turnaround agent, a lot of companies are not well run because of these types of things. We, we unfortunately don't empower our leaders as much and we don't help bring them up and mentor them and train them. And part of it becomes because well, we're scared of giving up that control or giving those yes. people knowledge. And it's really, in, in, instead of creating a better, stronger organization, it actually creates a weaker organization. Well, and also with that, too, I think why it happens is it's very difficult to put return on investment on leadership development or employee development. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult. They can be done, but it takes a lot. So then it's, And it's not hard numbers. It's not no, hard numbers. It's so so it's, it's very soft. They focus where the real numbers are. And they, they blow off those soft number areas of the business, which in the end really had probably the biggest impact in the long run on the real numbers that they're chasing. And it's just Let me go back to your issue because mm -hmm. it's a critical one. In, I, I worked for a very, very smart person years ago. He was really a mentor for me. And uh, the one thing he said that I'll, I'll never forget is hire the superstar who stays for a year or two instead of the mediocre person who stays for 20. Absolutely. And which gets to what you're saying. Companies have to be of a mindset that they're willing to try to encourage them to stay and understand some of the high performers are, will leave. But gosh, look at what you get while they're there. Well, and if you do that enough, they'll stay they because stay. they'll be surrounded by other high performers and they'll be like, wow, this is cool. We're really doing good things. And they'll want to hang around. Especially if, you're, if you are being respected and valued for what you're bringing. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing behind high performers is if they don't feel like they're being respected and valued for the contribution that they're making, then that's when they say, well, I've had it. I'll, I'll go somewhere else where I am respected and valued. Well, let me give you another complication. And remember I told you it depends. Um, it, you, you need a body of workers. You need worker bees. And... They're never going to be high performers, but they come and they do what's asked of them. And you need some portion of that in your organization if you're any size at all. And how do you keep them motivated and how do you reward them without diluting the rewards for the high performers? And so uh, what kind of reward do you give for longevity versus the reward for performance? That's a very tough question. And it, get, it usually speaks to the... Uh, culture and the way an organization looks at its employees, but the balance is critical to get at what you want. You want the high performers to stay. You want to track for them, but there has to be some reward for the worker bees. Because Absolutely. the high performers get raises and bonuses, and the worker bees get watches. Uh, well, yeah. right. It's, it's it's it could be, or it could be the other way around, which is the high performers don't get rewarded, and longevity does. Therefore, the high performers don't stay. So, I mean, you can't yeah. over you can't overcompensate the high performer at the expense of other people, but you can't not reward them. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, that's, isn't that though traditionally how it works? Like you put in your time, you you put in your time. I say that really in italics, you know, <laughs> and you get the gold watch, right? Yeah. Or the, or the you get steak the knives or kind the, of the standard raises that might be yeah. that might come out, but. And I'm not saying that that's bad because organizations need people to come to work and do what needs to be done. There's another factor that plays into the 
rewarding the high performer issue, and that's the organization's risk tolerance. The person who's out there on the edge is going to maybe make some mistakes, but nothing creative happens if you're not out there. And that is one of the biggest issues I find, particularly in larger organizations, is they get a little more structured, bureaucratic to coin a phrase. Um, They get less risk tolerant. Mm -hmm. And so less creativity happens. And the high performer who says, how about this? Or can we try that? They're going somewhere where people are willing to appreciate what they're willing to do. You know, I mean, you, uh, the famous story, of course, is 3M. Post-it notes is, mm-hmm. is a glue that failed. Exactly. Right. And at first, 3M said, well, post-it notes are a really stupid idea. And how many bazillion have they sold oh, in every shape, size, and right. with your name on it and what have you. But that's, that's also tough for organizations and feeds right into that issue because you have a lot of your middle-of-the-road employees are not going to be risk-takers and to some degree, the organization needs to stay its course. So you have to run a balance between what kind of risk and how much risk do you take and where do you take it. That's also a really tough question and has huge HR implications. We're not the only players in that decision, but it has implications. So if you were to name uh, maybe three companies who you think do that well, who would they be that are maybe that, that our listeners would recognize that do a good job of kind of making that balance? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, 3M comes to mind, of course, mm-hmm. and um, probably a- Amazon and Starbucks, are the local ones. Mm-hmm. I yeah. have one. I've heard, yeah. I've heard like, really good things about Starbucks. It's radio, dude. You don't have to raise your hand. Oh. <laughs> well, I have he one. raised his hand, everybody. <laughs> the, the Gore company that makes Gore-Tex, there, and there have mm-hmm. been a lot of case studies about them and the way that they do things that they don't have managers, they don't have job descriptions, they have sponsors, they have a very flat hierarchy where they share a lot of knowledge. And they also don't make groups larger than 150 people because they feel you can only really maintain 150 meaningful relationships around you. So they oh, keep groups group very small. Then. And a very, very interesting case study in how to wow. run an organization. No managers, just sponsors, very flat, no job titles, no business cards other than your name and stuff on it, and small groups. And not everyone will be comfortable. No. So that they must have a hiring process that deals with somebody willing and able to live in that culture. Because not everybody could. I bet they also have more high performers than a normal organization. They're a very innovative company and they do a lot of stuff. That would breed that would breed the risk taking innovators. Absolutely. You know, here's one I'd, I'd be interested in your perspective on is Microsoft. Speaking of a local company, uh, this is a company that's in uh, a point of. you know, terrible transition right now, trying to yes. figure out what, you know, how is it that today, from 15 years ago, they became IBM, you know, everything yes. that they tried not to be 30 years ago. And now, what is their business model? How do they make this transition? How do they make this turnaround? And are they really the star in terms of, of hiring and performance and, and development that they once were? Do you have any perspective on their operation? Um, not personally, but I have it from my students. Surely, and that is, I think you've hit the nail on the head. They were the they were the Gore Tex company once, right. but now they got so huge, and they also have a way of kind of an impersonal way of dealing with employees. At least they've tried it. Everything can be done virtually. Guess what? It can't. Right, and so employees are feeling isolated. They're feeling nobody cares about me. I had an, a student come into class once, very upset, 
that she had gotten an email about a reorganization, opened it up, and her group wasn't in in the reorganization, and she didn't know whether she had a job or not. And that wasn't the way to find out where she was going to be assigned. No, it's uh, subtle. Uh, it subtle like a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah. And and I hear lots and lots of those stories. So the answer needs to be, from my point to point of view, they also. Uh, let me digress for a second. I think got caught up with their own marketing in terms of we're on the cutting edge and we're out there and everybody wants to do what we do. So they put up stuff with bugs in it. Yeah. And employees were pushed so hard on timelines, I think they let it happen. And that's coming around to bite them as well. So that hopefully they're, they're, what, what seems to be happening is they're breaking down into smaller units, taking the Gore-Tex approach and saying, okay, here's this unit, go do what you do. And they're starting to promise the next uh, Windows iteration won't come out so buggy. And they're trying to deal with what's happening. It's just they got so big, they tried to run big the same way they ran small. Exactly. And it didn't work. The HR implications of that are vast. I have, uh, through the years, our clients have usually not been the huge organizations. They've got HR people, you know, out the window. So we're talking about the medium-sized folks who need help from getting small to medium to large. Because, right. you know, you're 10 people, you take roll in the morning, you keep your HR stuff on the back of an envelope, and that's fine. But you get bigger, and you need structure, and you need ways of doing things. You need somebody who knows what the heck they're doing. But how do you keep that structure without losing the innovation and those things that allowed you to grow in the first place? And the personal touch. And the personal yes. touch that you need that people are looking for. You know, here's an interesting comment. Oh, part of how you Please, do it yeah. is leadership and supervision and people knowing how to do that. That's how you do it. You hire that. 20%. Did I tell you my 20-80 rule? Sorry, I used the word 20%. We're talking about performers and, and then people who keep the organization running that you clearly need, uh, it's the 20-80 rule. 20% of the people doing pushing the other 80%. Yes. You, you can't live without the 80%. That doesn't mean they're not important, but it's really the smaller group, right. that's the movers and shakers, and they're not necessarily in charge. They may exactly. not be. Yeah. And you, but you need to make sure that that's, that 20% is represented at the top. Yes. And if, and if, if they're not, then they'll then this, get tired of it and they'll just check. Yeah, they will leave yeah. if they're being led by the 80%. In, in HR, we, we call it the 1090 rule. 10% of the people are taking 90% of your time. Exactly. And some days you come to work and you think, there's nobody here who came to work on time, who's happy here, who isn't doing something wrong. And, of course, that's not true. The vast majority of people are good people and they're doing, but that, you know, you know, nobody calls you up and said, hey, right. all my employees are great. They, yeah. they just don't do that. Right, right. There, I, I happen to have some experience you know, down in Portland with a, a couple of organizations that, that are trying to make this transition from mm-hmm. small to medium to sophisticated and larger, right, to, to grow and to become a, a real company, whatever mm-hmm. that looks like. The problem that they're facing is that their culture was started in sort of this, this and I, I don't think that, you know, the example I'm thinking of, I don't think they're alone. It's sort of this bohemian, yes. we get to, you know, bring our pets to work, we have, you know, we keep beer in the fridge. Um, the dot-com stuff. It is. You know, yeah. there are there are adult reading materials in the bathrooms. I mean, stuff that really is, is shocking when you walk in yes. and you have experience at a larger organization. But the risks to me, having my experience at a large organization, the risks to that kind of environment for being able to attract a more sophisticated and growing, uh, you know, culture are huge. 
how do they make that transition? I mean, what do you what do you tell a company like that when you have leadership that says, I want to kind of keep it this sort of hippie, kind of bohemian, dot commy, uh, dot commy. <laughs> nice. Dot com those, yeah. those bohemian so dot com. So if I understand what you say is that in order to to get larger and sophisticated, they have to don't drop they have to the make bohemian. some trade offs, right? Okay. I mean, they the do. Google guys made some trade offs. Yes, you know, uh, you know, you have you have to set up rules it, when you have five hundred employees. Mm-hmm. You can't have everybody just doing their own thing because you're not going to have five hundred people with this. Uh, focused vision. You have 10 employees who started this place, you know, a couple of founders and a few folks with them, and they have this great vision, and you don't have to set any rules. Everybody knows where they're going, but you get 500 people who weren't around when you started it, and they need some rules to keep them on the right road. And you then start to get people who aren't as, that this isn't the be-all and end-all of their life either. I mean, they, they come to work, they try to do a good job, but then they go home and have their real life. So they need some structure as well, and you just have to make sure that what you're trading off isn't the core of who you are. Because I think the things you want to keep are that culture. So mm-hmm. you want to still be able to ride the Segway down the down the aisle and, and play golf and throw footballs. And you might have to take away some of the, the magazines and different things, but you do want to keep an open, creative culture. I think about, uh, I think it's Google that keeps... Uh, a technology room where they just have all this junk that people can come in and play with to get ideas and iPods and gadgets and and, and it's the idea is you try to keep that entrepreneurial culture but while you keep knocking it, the edges off some of the other stuff. But you keep it segregated. You you brought up a good point. A lot of the very large companies have a place mm-hmm. either there or actually a separate place that they send these incredibly creative people to where they can write on the walls or they can play marbles or whatever it is that gets their creative juices flowing. So that that's part of, of how you keep the culture is to keep some of it going, but you also, to make it work as you get bigger and bigger, you may segregate that off. I've so often you, thought, though, if I had a company like that, I, all the walls would be, paint, would be painted with the stuff that you could write, whiteboard magic stuff, because... There's so much that happens that you're just writing in the hallway and you're talking and you come up with this idea and you have this big sketch that's out in the middle of anywhere and people add to it and you start thinking about it. It just drives. There's some tech companies that have that, that have like huh? these moving these moving walls that are whiteboards. So like if you have an impromptu meeting, you could come, you move two Stand of these. Stand in the hallway. Yeah. And, just, yeah. and you yeah. move yeah. these two cool. walls and, yep. then they, and then people sit around and they start yeah. visualizing. And, and I always wanted to make but the not floors trampoline. But not all companies trampoline. want yeah. that. Yeah. probably be where the line would be drawn. Not all companies appreciate that. <laughs> I mean. Your L&I folks would go crazy. You know the other thing you'd get out of the right on the wall stuff? is ideas from places you didn't expect it. Absolutely. I mean, the person who's sweeping up at night may say, oh, how about this? And write on there, wow. Yeah, exactly. And that, to me, is one of the biggest mistakes that I see managers make is they don't reach out to all kinds of places for ideas because the people who do it every day or who are around it every day have great ideas. And the people that talk don't don't have to have all the good ideas. You know why I think, I'll give you my theory because I think Unfortunately, a lot of managers who haven't had, you know, have not had leadership training or aren't natural leaders of different things, they're not very confident, and they're so they're running kind of scared. They're sometimes. threatened by people they're like oh, by really you smart bet they people. are. And so then, instead of being that way, they tend to be more passive aggressive, 
which is probably the hardest thing to define. How do you define somebody that's passive-aggressive because they're not doing anything overt, like screaming and yelling. It, but they will drive morale down even worse than a screaming yes. and yeller. Uh, or they micromanage or things like that to try and keep control of things because they're threatened by the ideas and, and the other things they can't control. And you have to teach people that it really is a kudo for you if you develop something that comes from your staff. Exactly. The, the culture has to reward the manager who develops the lower level person and doesn't take credit for it. Say, look what my person did and I created the atmosphere to let Harry come up with this great idea, aren't I swell? And the organization has to. You mean to I shouldn't have... put my name on it as a manager? No. Oh. I, no. I was being facetious. Anybody, no. don't beat me up. Be very facetious. <laughs> Stop right there. I, I just know. Oh, answer, I was about so, to give you a demerit. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> a demerit. No, I've just seen that too many times. Oh, and, indeed, and it's we just all have. Very frustrating, mm-hmm. and because it, no, you want good employees that are really smart. Hire people that are smarter than you are. Absolutely. Which in my case is really easy, and then you just let them give right. them some direction and vision. And let them go do their stuff. Well, particularly if you're working on a problem that involves something they work on. They do it every day, and I'll bet they have a really good idea of how to do it better. Absolutely. You coach leadership to get ego out of the way? Yeah. Um, well, Are you looking at me? <laughs> part of the problem is... <laughs> part of the problem is a good leader needs a strong ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're coaching them to use it appropriately. They need to be able to control it. Mm-hmm. Well, they need to be able to get ego gratification from other successes and say, it's a success for me if my employees are successful. And it's a way of of teaching them how to get that kind of gratification. And they don't have to curb their ego because leadership is not for the timid. But it's a matter of understanding that there's other ways to feed your ego than do it yourself or take credit for it yourself. And... Sometimes it's an HR person, you go into um, a leader's place, close the door, and tell them to knock it off. Mm-hmm. And give them those hard lessons, but you do it privately because of their ego. Right. So. Yeah, that's been hard because I've had, you know, thinking for years <laughs> over, you know, is it the egoleaderless, actually, egoless leader? Um, Let go that, my ego. That does, that does better. And then I've always struggled because it's like, but... With an ego comes also confidence, ability to take risk, willing to step outside the box exactly. to some extent. Yeah, right. So how can you? Ego is probably one of the most valuable tools, right? That in, but it's in also the most destructive. I mean, it's it's yeah. been the thing that's destroyed people. I mean, they've destroyed themselves, their reputation, everything, all over just their their insane ego and their ability not to. If they think that they have to do it all themselves, but the wise leader has lots of ego and says, "Look what my folks can do." and then gives them the power and authority and room to do it. Now, that's the leader you want to work for, and not the egomaniac who says, great idea, puts their name on it, and then takes credit for it. I don't think so. Or who says, that doesn't fit inside my view of the future. Ergo, we're not doing it, which is worse. I mean, at least your good idea, if it's, if it's implemented, fine, but the person who stands in your way, that's worse. 
Well, because what happens is, is you'll only bring those ideas up a few times and only get shot down. And then yeah. at some point you'll say, fine, I'm not going to do any. And so I've always said that employees will always lower themselves to the expectation of exactly. their manager. So if their oh, manager yes. has low expectations and doesn't want the ideas and micromanages you about when you come in and when you that's leave, exactly you know, what that's you'll exactly do. what they're going to do. You and bet. They're not going to do so an true. ounce more. Uh, and I would much rather give them the room to grow and and. And then if there are problems, kind of deal with them one, one at a time as they come up. But the other way around, just it doesn't work. It drives performance down and it ruins production. And so, so sometimes as an HR person, you're sort of, you're doing leadership counseling. It's not really training, it's counseling. These people know how to lead, but do they know how to lead effectively? Mm-hmm. So you're doing leadership effectiveness and management supervision effectiveness training. That's not what you call it, but that's what it is. Isn't that the fun part of the job, though? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think part. so. I, you know, there's there's the route there. You do fire people and you do all the hiring whatevers, although technology has been um, a real uh, freedom for us. Because at one time in HR, you had armies of scribes because you managed so much data, but you couldn't manipulate it. You couldn't do anything with it. And now, instead of an army of a scribe, you have, you know, a PC on your desk that does the same thing. So that we're now free to do the fun stuff. And that's really been been the fun thing of staying in HR all these years is you've gone from the record keeper, the no-sayer, the person who didn't contribute much to really being at the strategy table effectively if you're doing your job in an effective way. So I have uh, maybe uh, on the same line but slightly different direction. We got a lot of HR majors at University of Phoenix. So you, know, you have lots of people that you'll say, oh, I'd love to get into HR. And we know it's also a very com- uh, pretty competitive uh, industry as well. So for those folks that are thinking about an HR career, what would you maybe say is kind of the plight of the HR professional? I mean, what is, what's, what's maybe the misconceptions that our excited HR students have that, you know, their world may be crushed as soon as they get their first HR job? <laughs> Well, people say, well, I like people, I like being around people, therefore HR is for me. And I have to remind them that you're not going to be a counselor, you're not going to be a friend. That isn't to say you aren't going to be friendly. <laughs> HR and you is are... not management with a hug? <laughs> no, it's not. And, I mean, you're going to be friendly and sometimes you will counsel people. But the bottom line is you are helping to manage an asset. And if you don't understand that role you may find yourself caught between management's needs and the employee needs. And sometimes you do things to employees that you don't like and they don't like. Well, at the end of the day, you're really the advocate for the company. No question about it. And this is not something uniformly held in HR, but I think that the HR people who don't see themselves that way are not effective for their organization. Mm And that, I mean, sometimes you are telling management to stop doing things to their employees because it's not right. So you're making sure that the laws are followed, that employees are treated appropriately, but you're doing it to advocate for the company. Mm-hmm. And you're right. At the, at the end of the day, uh, what the company vision is is where I'm headed, and I know who employs me, and I know why I'm there. I'm managing an asset just like the warehouse manager or the production manager, I'm managing an asset, and I understand that is my role. And so that's a misconception, I think, that some folks have. And I also tell them, don't just look at HR and don't just take human 
uh, services, human counseling kinds of courses, you need a very broad business, business background. Absolutely. You need to understand accounting and you need to understand finance and all the other hard business skills. I know when I went to get my master's, people said, why don't you get a personnel master's? And I said, no, that isn't what I need. I went and got an MBA just for that reason and have counseled other folks the same. You know about HR. Go learn something new and go learn something your organization needs you to know. Right. Because if you can talk their talk as an HR professional at the table, then they're more likely to turn around and, and listen to what you have to say back from your area of expertise. Absolutely. You get credibility. But the other thing is you increase your value in terms of understanding how your role fits into the greater scheme of things. Exactly. Because you have to understand, uh, okay, we make decisions sometimes because of how we're financing the company or how the economy is going. And you have to understand all of that you're really going to be effective. So that's, they say, I really have to take all that? Yeah, I'd recommend it. And so um, the, the other thing about HR is you're not going to come out with your master's in your hand and go be somebody's director. You do exactly. have to. Exactly. You've got to move up the ranks. You do because the, a lot of what you do is based on judgment, and judgment comes through experience. I mean, you don't have to go file in personnel files, uh, if anybody still has those, but you do have to uh, go through some of the uh, analysis experience to understand the judgment call of, oh, does this fit with the vision? Or sometimes you're trying to figure out who's lying to you. And that comes from experience as well. So how do you break in? I, I mean, if you're going to school and you're working on a bachelor's degree in management or HR or something, how do you break into the field then if you're not in it today? You take the lower-level technical or uh, analyst jobs. They uh, organization HR offices have spots for entry-level college graduates, and they call them analysts or technicians. Or uh, they all got coordinators. I don't know. They have all kinds of titles, and hopefully, you start in an organization that's large, so you'll get a little taste of all kinds of things. The hiring process the uh, maybe a little bit of compensation strategy, all the strategy pieces, and you get hopefully some experience in all of them. And then you start moving your way up. And you got to be a sponge, and you just got to move around. You bet. And you got to take the horrible salary, because they are not the greatest salaries, those lowest level HR you jobs. You, you got to take that low salary. You got to be a sponge. You got to try to get yourself involved in as much projects. Those kinds of things be positive despite your strategy. And if you do that, and if you're, yeah. if you're really learning, you will move through the through the ranks. You'll be recognized for that. But but you have you have to start low. So the idea of you're going to get your degree and move into an HR job at at you know forty eight thousand uh, uh, dollars. Wouldn't that be sweet? Yeah. <laughs> I, I you know I I volunteered for everything that came around, and I a couple of times in my career took jobs for less money because I thought I was going to get some great experience and built my resume took and built my experience. You bet. Because I was building my experience base. And it stood me in good stead. Well, on that note, Linda, thank you so much for sitting down with us. This has been a very informative hour. It's our first really HR show. You know, it is. And I'm I'm actually glad we were able to do it because, you know, people forget. I mean, we sit here and we spout off on our own stuff. But, I mean, that's really your field, Mary. And and it's it's nice to, to... 
you know, do one of these things that, you know, is kind of your home base <laughs> and, not, and not just an excuse for you to get all liberal and political on us. So. Which I try to get you to do on every opportunity. Well, this has been a, this has been a very interesting Well, thank show, you. Thank, thank you. I've enjoyed it. it. At least yeah. to, to uh, you know, hopefully inspire uh, folks that HR is not to be feared. Uh, no, we're really not bad guys. We're not bad guys. No, we're not. And we don't make you sing Kumbaya. No, we don't. No, we don't. We don't make everybody hug at the end of the day. We <laughs> promise. We promise. That's good because I don't even know the words. <laughs> well, I'll teach it's you a short when we're song. done. It's easy. Like, oh, uh, you even know the hand movements. Oh, my goodness. Something like that. <laughs> Up with people. Here we come. Uh, anyway, this has been another episode of Tuesday Noon. Uh, we are about finished. Don't forget. To subscribe to the show. Subscribe. Uh, yes. Definitely go subscribe. Uh, you think one episode is great. How great would it be What to if they have... want to send us an email? Send us they emails. can do that all they want. Oh, yeah, right. Our the address. first name. You could send us to uh, the show at Tuesday12.com. That'll get to us. Or our first name at Tuesday12.com. Jamie, Pete, Mary at Tuesday12.com. Uh, visit us on the web, Tuesday12.com. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Let us know you love us. And, yeah. Linda, if anybody wanted to contact you about some consulting work or anything like that, is there a, is there a website? Is there an email you'd want us to share? Either? Uh, sure. They, I think the best way to start our uh, website is not quite active yet. Oops. Uh, they could email me personally, okay. linda.croner at verizon.net. Easy enough. Great. We'll put that on our website. We will. We'll drop that on the website. And with that, I believe we're out of here until uh, next week. This has been Tuesday Noon. Bye-bye. We're out. This has been Tuesday Noon for October 17, 2006, a service of University of Phoenix. For more information on the show and to subscribe, catch up with us on our website at Tuesday12.com and write us at the show at Tuesday12.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week, Tuesday Noon.